Don't tell me words don't matter. Because our words have creative power. On Open to Interpretation, host Amy Young is joined by PLU faculty and educators from different academic disciplines to consider a single word commonly used in the news, on social media, and on college campuses. It ain't the word! It's the context in which the word is said. Through debate and dialogue, Open to Interpretation reminds us that rarely, if ever, can a word's meaning be reduced to a single understanding. At last, we're going to have a dialogue about the power of words. And now, here's Dr. Amy Young. Welcome to another episode of Open to Interpretation. I'm Amy Young, Associate Professor of Communication. And with me, I have Seth Dowlin, Associate Professor of Religion, and Claire Todd, Associate Professor of Geosciences and Environmental Studies. Good morning. 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 <laughs> Uh, now everyone knows it's morning whenever this goes up. Okay, so we always start this with a few warm-up questions just to sort of work out the bugs. And so my first question is, what historical figure would you most like to have dinner with? Claire? That's tough. I'll pick one that I wouldn't mind having dinner with. I think her name is Faye Fuller, the first woman to summit Mount Rainier. Oh. Yes, she did it in a scandalous outfit. <laughs> that covered effectively all of her. Still scandalous. I would love to have dinner with her. That is a scandal. Yeah. But that's pretty badass. Yeah, I, th I think she's probably pretty cool. Yeah. Seth? I feel like uh, if I got to have dinner, I study history, so I study all sorts of fascinating figure, and I'll go with the one that I've been thinking about a lot recently because I'm teaching his autobiography is Malcolm X. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, favorite place in the Pacific Northwest to get away for a weekend? Seth, we'll go back to you. We have, um, my uh, wife and I have not explored as much of the Pacific Northwest. We're relative newcomers to the area, but probably our favorite place is Mount Rainier and just the uh, hiking up there and chance to be place uh, near a place where we used to go on vacation. Now we live in this wonderful it's wonderland. Cool. Yeah. The mountain is out. Mm -hmm. Claire, what about you? I agree with Seth that I love Mount Rainier, but I work there a lot. I spend a lot of time there. So I would say... Another favorite spot is Cape Disappointment, where oh, the Columbia I've heard meets really the sea. good things about Cape mm -hmm. Disappointment. It also has sort of fascinating history. There's a nearby location called a dismal niche that Lewis and Clark paddled their boats into and spent several days hunched over in a dreadful rainstorm. So it's got <laughs> it's everything. It's like an epically depressing series of <laughs> names, right? Uh, we have a cabin up in Packwood, Washington, so that's where I would go. So if you weren't doing this gig for a living, what would you be doing, Claire? That's challenging. I would say the <laughs> last thing I wanted to be before I wanted to be a geologist was a writer. Okay. Mm -hmm. Of what? Novels? Could, no, probably some combination, some, some combination sort of nonfiction or some kind of interpretive work. But that's hard to say. It, it's been a long time since I wasn't a geologist. Yeah, so yeah, same. Well, not that since I wasn't a geologist, but yeah. that's interesting because I writing is I think a part of my professional identity in a way that is I don't know that it's unique to the humanities, but it definitely means that I try to spend my summers writing. Uh, I had a much more frivolous answer. Uh, frivolous is good when I'm not being a professor, or even sometimes when I am, I'm thinking a lot about golf, which is how I occupy a lot of. Not a lot of my free time, less than I'd like. And uh, I'm not good enough to make a career out of golfing, but I would love to get to do more of it. I think I would, uh, I think I'd be a party planner. 
or a fantastic. Chef. I can see it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> be a lot of jazz hands, or you know, implied jazz hands. Okay, so on open to interpretation, we take a word that's used a lot in popular discourse or media or on campus, but one that has variable meaning, and we try to kind of unpack what those meanings are. So that's what we're going to do today with the word irrefutable. So I appreciate you being here because I think we probably have different perspectives on this word disciplinarily or just experientially. So what ought to qualify something as irrefutable or should anything be considered irrefutable? I think irrefutable suggests something that is no longer up for discussion. Mm -hmm. And that's a high standard to apply. So at one level, I think nothing is irrefutable in the sense that that everything should be up for discussion. But I study religious history, and and I think that's why I'm here on the podcast. Probably. Uh, and another layer... Yeah, charm. Yeah, right. Uh, another layer of the, the meaning is there are certain claims of faith that are still up for discussion, right? You still want to talk about, but the point is to, isn't to argue whether they're true or not in an empirical basis because no one could ever prove mm-hmm. or disprove certain religious claims. And in that sense, they might be thought of as irrefutable, but not without the possibility of discussing them or figuring out the nuances and paradoxes that are contained within them. Yeah. I agree with Seth. It takes on this, these sort of two prongs. The one is that is unquestionable. Mm-hmm. I have ir- the, the irrefutable evidence phrase, right? And my evidence mm-hmm. is so good that this statement, it is, it is this, this, this piece of information, it is irrefutable because my evidence is so overwhelming. I tend to think of it more as, hmm, that is an irrefutable question or, or topic or I like how sort of Seth brought in matter of faith. Okay. Um, that there are questions to which you can discuss. You can apply all kinds of um, different frameworks and and ethical boundaries to or faiths to. But you, you can't use the scientific method to answer them yes or no or to prove or to disprove. So on the other hand, irrefutable is it's not possible to refute or to – you cannot prove or, or disprove that question. It is, right. it, but it is absolutely up. For discussion. Okay. Is it something about the burden of proof? I'm thinking about this because, you know, one of the things that sometimes or happens, I think, quite a lot in, I guess, what we'd loosely call argument, though it's really more like a shouting of claims in predominantly sort of media discourse, is that it's like, well, I'm going to shift the burden of proof onto you because I don't really have, <laughs> I can't prove or disprove. So if I shift the burden of proof, then it puts it on to you in some way. I'm thinking about this particularly like in faith claims. Mm -hmm. The nature of faith claims, particularly critics of religious belief or critics of certain types of Mm -hmm. religious beliefs, um, would be that's impossible. That's ridiculous. Those are claims that go against science. We know that can't have happened the way you say it is. Or perhaps a religious believer has some understanding of what's going to happen. Right. You know, in the future. <laughs> right. Yeah. And these claims, I think, are unprovable if we take the scientific method as our standard of proof. But they're also, interestingly, 
often at odds with the way people live their lives. And I don't mean this always in a bad sense. So if you look at um, people who, for instance, believe Jesus is coming again, like tomorrow, um, (laughs) they don't live their lives as if. Jesus, Jesus were coming again. Yeah, yeah, right? So, you know, you look at the early Pentecostal revivals in the early 1900s, and these believers talked about the latter rain, Jesus coming, and the implication was this was going to happen very soon. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they're founding Bible colleges and starting radio stations and building these institutions that are meant to last for centuries. And so how do you deal with the paradoxes? And And the reality is... I think when you take claims that are irrefutable, it's important to hear them and take them seriously. But sometimes the face value isn't what we're after. We're we're interested in the the complex worlds that these claims kind of inaugurate, right? They're not just meant to be scientific theorems to be tested, but rather they're um, statements that that actually – create worlds for people um, that are that are quite complex. So they don't show up in a vacuum, right? And so one of, what are some of the forces that lead to like widespread belief or the belief that something is right or wrong or true or false or that something is irrefutable, right? Testing, empirical testing or something might be one of those mechanisms. What are some others that we might think of for people to claim something as irrefutable. I would I want to kind of uh, follow up on yeah. what Seth was talking about and, and your mentioning of the burden of proof. Mm-hmm. And this kind of comes around to um, how how do we get to a place where there's widespread belief about something. Right. Um, but I think I really agree that these irrefutable statements um, that are not subject to the scientific method um, that are uh, – I think that's where we learn a lot about the human condition through discussions about irrefutable claims. And in that regard, I'm using the word irrefutable to mean something to which, as a scientist, I cannot apply the scientific method. Mm -hmm. However, as a citizen, as a friend, as a colleague, I'm very interested in talking about some of those irrefutable claims of, of faith or belief. When we think about how do we come to widespread belief about something, I'll put my science hat back on. Sure. And I'll say that we don't, as a scientist, I don't think about things in terms of burden of proof. Mm-hmm. I think about things as, as I have an idea and I'd like to test that idea. It may be that that idea about how, let's say, about a way that the world works, it may be that someone else has, has proposed a possible way that the world works. And I actually, based on my observations, some of my previous research, I disagree. So I will pose a different hypothesis. I actually think it works in this way, not in the way described in that paper. And I set up an experiment in my line of work that can be hard to do since my laboratory tends to be places like Mount Rainier. And And I see what the earth tells me based on the experiment that I have set up. So what kind of data am I collecting? And so then I have learned something about my particular system, uh, and I I publish it, and I say, actually, I think the timing of this process that happened 10,000 years ago was actually 10,000 years ago, not 14,000 years ago. And so has that shifted the burden of proof to the other scientist whose hypothesis I disagreed with? Maybe. But I would say over time, Many, 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 many different hypotheses, many, 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 many scientists, many, 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 many publications. We build 
a body of information mm -hmm. that can lead to widespread understanding about a phenomenon. Okay. And it's not necessarily in an argument, one-on-one -on -one argument, now the burden mm -hmm. of proof is on my colleague, but instead the burden of understanding, I would rather say, mm -hmm. is on the scientific community. Okay. Do you think that when you accumulate so much information and it's done by many different people over many years, are there ways that the premises or assumptions undergirding initial questions or hypotheses become fixed and unchallengeable? Like, does it, you know, what does it take to undermine uh, a wide body of evidence? And is that a desirable thing in the world of science? Absolutely a desirable thing in the world of science. So let's take, for example, uh, Wegener's theory of continental drift, early 20th century. Mm -hmm. It was thought to be insane that we were on continents that were moving. How could anyone think that? And there, was, there were plenty of, of people who were explaining some of the features that we see on the surface of the earth in ways that had nothing to do with the continent shifting. And what we learned over decades is through sort of the initial idea of Alfred Wegener and then over time improved technology mm -hmm. through the sort of middle 20th century allowed us to actually measure movements of centimeters per year mm -hmm. um, and look at the age of rocks on the ocean floor. And so that overturning of our understanding of how the world works is really important. Mm -hmm. Similarly, and actually, I think um, a nice kind of addition to this conversation is the, the mega floods that scoured eastern Washington. Mm. When J. Harlan Bretz first proposed that idea, the relatively new field of geosciences thought it was effectively offensive because it sounded biblical. Mm -hmm. And geosciences had been working away from a biblical understanding of how our world exists. And, and it was, no, no, things don't happen quickly in geology. They happen slowly. If they happen quickly, that sounds too much like biblical floods. And we're right. trying to say the earth was not formed. 6,000 years ago. Correct, yeah. yeah. Right. And so that was, he really, he had to doggedly work hard, and it took scientists in Montana mm -hmm. and in other parts of the world to start to identify, well, how could we get so much water that would be, it would be released so quickly and, and all of these things. So that overturning is a critical part of the scientific community mm -hmm. and something that should always, you should always be welcome to test um, different ideas. I wonder... When you move from hypothesis to theory to something that is seems more fixed, it is not fixed, I get that, but mm -hmm. seems more fixed, does it start in some people's minds to become irrefutable because they start building their own work on on a theory and they they don't continuously challenge the assumptions of the theory itself mm -hmm. because they're using it. And we we all do this. This mm -hmm. isn't just science, but all kind of theoretical lenses through which we Mm -hmm. make more knowledge, right. are based, are grounded in something. We have to, right, in order for us to make progress in our understanding sure. of how the world works, have to build on that um, kind of fundamental understanding. And so that's sort of the first part of a scientific publication is, let's take this study and that study yeah. and that study. Lit that review. Study. Exactly. And the, my guess is that of those kind of 10, 15, 20 studies that are cited, um, some of those may still be up for questioning. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think about irrefutable as being a hard thing to apply to a, you know, a huge concept um, because there's so many little pieces of scientific understanding that have built that sure. concept. Featuring video testimony from 16 PLU students, faculty members, and staff, PLU's Listen Campaign is a collection of individual stories that provide multiple perspectives on what it means to be a community that not only embraces diversity, but also works actively in community to provide social change. 
Learn more at plu.edu slash listen. But circling back to a question you asked a few minutes ago, Amy, was what helps to create the appearance of irrefutability. Yeah. And um, the communities that we live and work in, I think, begin to take things for granted, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, akin to what we were just talking about, we have to have theories or lenses with through which to see the world. We, we also... Um, our sense of what's true is shaped by the people we spend time with, the communities that we work in. And uh, this applies in in the world of academia, but it also applies in our neighborhoods and in our faith communities. Um, one of the kind of persistent examples that I teach is um, in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, uh, it would it would have been hard to find a white Christian in the United States, even one who was opposed to slavery, who thought that the Bible was against slavery, that the Bible was hostile to the institution of slavery as it was practiced in the United States. Um, and it speaks to the way that system of race-based slavery that existed in the United States during that time had become irrefutable in a sense that it was right right and it was it was so um, central to the economy to politics and to the way people read the bible that they just simply assumed that if they were going to argue against slavery the bible wasn't going to support their claim which is of course not at all what most people in 2017 believe uh, the bible to be about the bible speaks against slavery which be most white Christians belief. And, and, and that example, I think, reveals the way in which um, the time we live in and the communities uh, that we're a part of, even the nation we live in, uh, shapes our sense of what is fixed truth, mm-hmm. right? And, we and have how that. we read texts then through that fixed truth. Right. And we have this sense that, that these things are eternal and unchanging. But of course, when you take a longer perspective of history, you realize they change all the time and things that were commonplace become ridiculous and things that were, you know, unthinkable become orthodox. And that's a really fascinating perspective to gain on lots of different types of claims. Which leads me into a question that I guess is broadly about alternative facts. <laughs> what do you make of the time in which we live <laughs> in which a, a a claim of something being an alternative fact is, yes, okay, lampooned, but would ever be uttered in the first place, that we we have these sort of, our words so slippery, <laughs> our meanings so vacuous, <laughs> that we're on some other end of the spectrum from being irrefutable. <laughs> yeah. What is a fact? I mean, for instance... <laughs> Um, I would say when I, either in my own research or in conversations outside of my research, conversations about the current political situation, I like to, th- I, if I get confused, bogged down, discouraged, one of the places I like to go is sort of, okay, what do I know? Okay. And as so a scientist. T- touchstones. As yeah. touchstones. And as a scientist, I can go out into a natural world and I can start to make observations and and I and I know my colleagues in the humanities will point out that those observations are absolutely colored by my training and my my position in in, sure. in society. But still, I can go out and I can document. I can make a measurement. Mm-hmm. That rock is this big. 
Okay. And then I can look at a shape and say, huh, that rock got here, I think, by this process. And then maybe I can witness that process happening now. And so I, in times when it seems like facts are no longer facts, mm-hmm. the truth is no longer the truth, I, I find it grounding to return to observation um, as a way to start to know again. Now, notice that that is me isolating myself from the complex political issues of the day. Yeah. However, <laughs> it is comforting. Um, and so I guess for every discipline, it's important for us all to reflect on mm-hmm. how do we know something? What does it mean to know something? Yeah. And I, I think my last answer might suggest I would think that there's no eternal truths. But even if that is the case, it doesn't absolve us of the responsibility to pursue the truth. Um, And in fact, I think studying history grounds us in a way uh, that maybe Claire's observations of nature do as well. The other day in class, I I put on the screen something that the Ku Klux Klan uh, creed that they published in 1926 Mm -hmm. that actually said nothing about race, but connected Protestant Christianity to hostility to immigration, hostility to Catholics, um, to uh, America first language. Hmm. It was so incredibly obvious to my students, the resonances of this history with what we're seeing in our current political moment. And that made clear some of the ways that rhetoric that seems innocuous or seems uh, disconnected from race or from racism. I think it made clear to students when you when you study this stuff in its historical context, knowing the way this rhetoric has appeared before in our past, mm-hmm. actually, you know, it, it grounds it in. I don't know if it grounds it in facts, since that was where we started this question, but but it does ground it in something outside the present moment that will, I think, open up a greater understanding of what's going on in our con- in our contemporary world. Yeah. And and I think we have to continue to pursue those type of connections and those type of historical resonances because it does make certain truths more obvious to us yeah. um, than they might be if we're just in this kind of culture of alternative facts and spin, um, right? There is some... There are some truths in in history. There are some truths in scientific observation. Mm -hmm. um, And that's why we have to keep doing this work. Well, and of course, I mean, it's always interesting from a perspective of a rhetorician to find those moments when these um, rhetorics come back and connect them. So using populist rhetoric as a cover for white nationalism, this is not the first time that that (laughs) – Right. This is not that first rodeo, right? (laughs) Um, And I think about that because I think about Claire's point about observation – and the benefits of observation, the benefits of being able to have this sort of tangible experience where there's a rock and it's a certain size and you know it is, right? And you can say it is and, and you can measure it and those kinds of things. Um, in this um, sort of media phenomenon of gaslighting. So if you observe someone's inauguration crowd is smaller than another president's inauguration crowd, and that seems like we all kind of agree that this is an empirically <laughs> provable mm-hmm. difference, mm-hmm. right, in size. Uh, but we hear repeatedly that that is not true, 
that in fact your eyes are deceiving you in some way, that there is this sort of, I think, unfortunate psychology to that that starts to undermine even what most people would reasonably agree is true. I would. I would. I, I'm going to have my science hat on for just a couple seconds and cool. then I'm going to tell you when I'm going to take it off. OK. OK. Yeah. Ready. Um, as a scientist, one thing I cannot do is witness everything that I want to know about. Mm-hmm. So I wish I could have a million iPhone cameras staring at, staring at Mount Rainier. I, I wish I could time travel. That is my superpower of choice. If I could time travel, I would park myself in my field sites in Antarctica and push the rewind and fast forward button and see what the ice sheet did. Yeah. But I, I can't witness everything I want to witness. Right. And that is, uh, that is when we have to use interpretation and, and different tools. Mm-hmm. I'm taking the science hat off now. Okay. I think in times like these, we can witness mm-hmm. and we need to be witnessing what is happening, whether mm-hmm. it is we are reading from a variety of different news sites, we are involved in our communities, we are listening to people, we have our iPhones out, um, we are documenting crowds that we are in, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I believe that in times when people are trying to undermine truth, mm-hmm. we have the privilege and the responsibility to witness mm-hmm. and to to see things with our, our own eyes, to document them, to talk about them, yeah. and to, to build a level of understanding, even when the powers that be are telling us that our understanding of things that we witnessed ourselves is wrong. Yeah, I would agree. I would echo that uh, entirely. The, talking about the inauguration crowds caused me to think of something that lies outside my expertise, which is the studies on brain science and the way that our political orientations actually cause us to ignore mm-hmm. facts. And... I think truthiness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and this is uh this actually happens across the political spectrum. Um so none of us are are immune to confirmation bias. So I actually think Claire's earlier point about observation although you put it in the context of uh the natural world, I think you just reframed it in terms of witnessing uh issues of injustice, uh, instances where uh, things happen that are not right, and and just naming and describing them accurately is important. And then there's also this practice that we can kind of try to work on in our own lives, uh, which is a, a sort of healthy skepticism of things that you read and hear that mm-hmm. confirm what you already believe should be uh, the things that send up red flags, but actually it works quite the opposite, right? Any, absolutely. Anything that confirms what I already believe is absolutely right. And we tend, of course, to self-select <laughs> yeah. information sources that right. confirm what we already <laughs> Yeah, and going back to the point about communities, we live in communities or choose to be in communities where uh, our views are, are not questioned. Um, and I wouldn't you know, I wouldn't want to go be in communities all the time where uh, you get beat up. Yeah, yeah. Or I felt like the crazy person. Um, but but it is um, uh, it's important. I think you know this kind of two steps of naming and describing things accurately, and then when you're reading other people's accounts, to exercise 
healthy skepticism, particularly on the things that you want to believe mm -hmm. uh, are true. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about this notion of witnessing and skepticism <laughs> and teaching. Do you, How do you make space for that in the classroom? Skepticism or witnessing or a legitimate airing of very different beliefs. I mean, I, I teach classes where this happens a lot because we're attuned to media that is trying to persuade us to do things based on a set of assumptions about our values or beliefs or what is true and false for the audience that it's trying to target. Well, what if those things aren't true or false or those aren't the values or values are changing or the audience demography is largely different than you think it is? How do you make space for those kinds of things in class? My refuge here is history. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I say refuge in part because studying history opens space for conversations that might not be available if we launched immediately into the political issues of the current moment right. where there are already entrenched beliefs and we may not all share the same beliefs. So it's easier in some ways. It is. To it is. Talk about it because it's more removed. Right. So I, you know, I'm teaching a class on, on Islam in the United States, uh, obviously a, a subject that's in the news mm -hmm. and uh, that people probably come into class having some ideas about. And, um, and we start by studying the first Muslims in the United States who were slaves taken from West Africa. Mm -hmm. And it's not at all where anybody expects to start a class on Islam in the United States. Right. But it gives us perspective on what persecution of Muslims looked like 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. Very different from what we might think of as persecution of Muslims today, but it, it kind of allows us to build up some uh, understanding of the history and um, some mutual trust as a class before we do get to the current moment at the end of the semester, right? And this happens in a lot of my classes where we talk about these contentious religious or political issues, um, um, but we do so in the distant past where nobody has um, a dog in the fight, right? Nobody, right. Nobody's... Um, you know, really rah rah one side, right? Yeah. Nobody's really invested in um, the outcome of that particular battle because it was it was fought a long time before they were born. Right. I would say that I am constantly reminded that our students come from all different kinds of backgrounds. However, you want to interpret that word: different family experiences, different professional experiences, um, different geographic experiences. Uh, and I think it's it is really important to make to make space for those experiences to be shared, even if it's not mm -hmm. in connection to a particularly contentious issue. Right. But there there is space for everyone to be contributing whatever mm -hmm. whatever experiences they're bringing to the classroom. Right. And and that their thoughts on what we are learning are all part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. I think it's some students walk into classes assuming everyone will agree with them and think in the same way that they do. And at PLU, that's not the case. And I, I think it's part of the learning process right. to have to share your space with people who do not 
agree with you. Yeah. Uh, and that's a, that is a part of the learning process that I cherish and that I think we actually do particularly well here at PLU is making space in the classroom for people who are coming from lots of different places to, to share learning. Okay. Last word on irrefutable. Anything you want to say that we did not say? I think the important thing that I would kind of hold on to when considering irrefutable, particularly in the context of faith claims, uh, is to use irrefutable in that second sense I talked about at the Mm -hmm. the beginning, which is these are, are claims that are irrefutable, not because we are hoping to foreclosed discussion, but they're of a different realm than empirical science. They're claims that for outsiders could sound ridiculous, crazy, um, impossible. And yet for people who believe they can be fascinatingly complex uh, claims because they don't play out in all the ways you would expect them to. Right. And so to um, to hold our skepticism loosely and try to kind of enter into worlds of people who believe things to be irrefutable that we find absurd can be this really enriching way of, of engaging with the human situation, as you said. And I think I'll, I'll end with just looking at that other side of irrefutable that we started with, which right. is unquestionable. Mm-hmm. Um, certain. Certain. I think people look to science to provide irrefutable facts or irrefutable evidence. And yet the very nature of science is the process of refuting. And so there may be a, a large body of evidence that gives us 99% certainty. Mm-hmm. If that is irrefutable to you, then science will be happy to tell you the things that we feel 99% certain about. Um, but it, we would not use the word irrefutable. And I am just thrilled to be on a campus where there are colleagues who are engaging the other type of irrefutable, the questions that are bigger than um, ourselves that really require us to kind of look inside to answer. Thank you both for being here this morning. Thank you. That escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. And that's all I have to say about that. I learned something today. We're all officially kicked out of school. See you around. Yeah, see you.